Well, we had a new Prime Minister and Cabinet signed in, sworn in this week. What are the, what's the term? Sworn in? Yeah, sworn in. So now we know with certainty, right, who's going to lead us for the next three years? Well, for the next little while anyway. Uh, but there's still stuff we don't know about our leadership as a country over the next three years, what this government will be like. There's a nagging doubt in most uh, voters, I suspect, a question of will our new government care more for us as the people or for themselves? Will they keep their promises that they make? With a potentially hostile Senate, will they be able to keep their promises even if they wanted to? There remains some uncertainty about our leadership for the next three years. But not so with Jesus. We can be absolutely certain, can't we, of his self-sacrificial love for us. We can be absolutely certain of his promises. We can be absolutely certain that through his power and obedience, he will perfectly achieve God's plans. No hostile Senate to get in his way. And if there's one election we can be certain of, we can be certain of our election in Christ, that God has chosen those who would come out of the world as followers of Jesus. And so we're coming now to look at the period often known as the Passion, the lead-up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, in recent times, we've looked through the way that Jesus has prepared his disciples for his coming death. Uh, through chapters 13 to 17, we've seen how Jesus has warned his disciples and comforted them and made promises of his presence with them by the Spirit. And in chapter 17, we saw that he prayed. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed even for us, those who would believe their message after them. And he prayed that both he as the Son and through his completed work, he might bring glory to his Father. And now as we come to look at the lead up to Jesus' death, we'll see how he demonstrates his love for his Father, his love for his disciples and indeed his love for us as he obediently faces death in accordance with God's plan that nothing is able to change. So through this passage, we'll look at different aspects of this. We'll look at Jesus' sovereign control, his sovereign power, and his sovereign care. So firstly, his sovereign control. I'm not sure if you picked it up as Greg read that passage to us. But it seems clear from this account that Jesus is entirely in control of the situation. Even in the lead-up to this, uh, earlier at the meal he shared with his disciples, at which time Judas had already decided that he would betray Jesus. And we're told that in the light of this, Satan had entered into him. It's not until Jesus commands Judas that he slips out. Jesus says to him back in chapter 13, verse 27, what you're about to do, do quickly. And it's only after that point that Judas then 
runs off to the chief priests. And we see here that after Jesus has prayed for his disciples and for us and for himself, he takes them to a garden, a garden which is well known to him and his disciples and indeed to Judas. Uh, Perhaps it's a a private garden that they've been uh, given permission to lodge in uh, because we know from the other Gospels that this garden was where Jesus and his disciples regularly spent their evenings. Uh, So uh, Jesus is not seeking to hide from Judas and those Judas would bring. He goes to a known place where he can be found. He goes to a known place away from the crowds where the authorities who've been a bit anxious about acting against Jesus in public, uh, this remote, more remote place at night uh, enables them to come out and uh, arrest him. So Jesus is in control of the situation, in control of the venue. And we see also that Jesus has a supernatural knowledge of the events unfolding. He knew what was about to happen. And we've seen this throughout John's Gospel. We've seen that Jesus knows people in a way beyond what we can know people. He knows people's hearts. Uh, You might remember when he meets the woman at the well, he knows things about her that no one else could know about her. And we've known all along that Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Even as the crowds come to arrest him, it's Jesus who takes the initiative. So in verse 4, it's Jesus who comes out. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Now, Jesus has been in control of things all along. We've seen through John's Gospel various attempts for the authorities to arrest Jesus or even to stone him, but they've been unable to do so. And frequently we're told that it's because Jesus' hour has not yet come. They are completely unable to act against him. But now the situation has changed. Just as Jesus began to prepare his disciples for his impending departure his impending death. Uh, Jesus knows the situation has changed. Back at the beginning of chapter 13, we read, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Previously, they'd been unable to act against him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is fully aware that now the time the time that he'd been prepared for all along, the time leading to his arrest and crucifixion had come. And so it's not so much that the authorities are now able to arrest him, but that Jesus surrenders to them. We see Jesus' sovereign power even in the way in which he's able to... uh, to hold to his word. He has sovereign control over all things. When he says, none of my disciples I'm going to lose, uh, we see here that fulfilled. So Jesus is in sovereign control of all things. The people, those opposed to him, aren't able to act apart from that. We see those even aligned to him aren't able to act apart from that. 
Even Peter, in his enthusiasm, is unable to derail all that Jesus uh, has in mind to do. Peter acts rashly. Uh, It's typical of Peter, isn't it? We see that that pattern throughout the Gospel. Uh, Previously, Peter's uh, expressed this enthusiasm to protect Jesus. Again, back in chapter 13, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? When Jesus says, I'm going away and you can't come with me for the time being. He says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now clearly, Peter didn't understand the necessity of Jesus' death. And Peter's actions could have easily undone Jesus' desire to protect his disciples, right? As he draws his sword and leaps in, he could have been killed. He could have been arrested, at least, alongside Jesus and perhaps caused a skirmish which not only enveloped Peter, but the other disciples as well. But even in the light of Peter's attempt, Jesus is able to control the situation and establish that the disciples are free to go. Did you notice too, he asked them doubly, who is it you're seeking? Who are you after? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Lucky he didn't say it three times. It's hard to say three times quickly. Uh, But he said, okay, so it's me you're after, let my disciples go. Peter is unable to derail Jesus' plans. There's a lesson for us too in Peter, a warning for us. What was Peter seeking to do? A leap in and defend Jesus as if Jesus needed defending. Uh, I think often we can be eager to help out God, can't we? We think this is what God should be doing. If God's not going to do it, I'll jump in there and do it. We act rashly like Peter, thinking that we're serving God. But on reflection, it's more about our desires and plans than going along with God's desires and plans. Yet even we can't derail God's plans. So, as we're reminded of Jesus' sovereign control over the situation, we can have absolute confidence and assurance that God continues to exercise his sovereign control, that Christ continues to exercise his sovereign control over all things to bring about God's purposes. As we look at the world around us, and uh, this seems increasingly the case perhaps for us, we can be anxious. We do live in uncertain times. And it seems, particularly for the church, that the Western society is more and more close to God and more and more opposed to his church. But let this passage remind us of Christ's sovereign control over all things. Remind us of what the prophet Isaiah uh, reminded 
God's people a long time ago. In Isaiah chapter 14, he says this, This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? No one, nothing. As Peter came to realise, and and we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, God was entirely in control of this situation. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold over him. All this happened as part of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus was not the unfortunate victim of circumstances, but entirely in control of everything that was happening. A reminder to us that God's purposes will be achieved even if the whole world conspires against him. As we have represented here, but it's not Judas, it's not the Jewish officials, it's not the Roman commander of guards, it's Jesus who is entirely in control of the situation. And just as we see Jesus' sovereign control... So we see it matched with his sovereign power. It's quite a crowd that's come out against Jesus. I I think as I'd read this passage before, I'd kind of imagined maybe a couple of dozen soldiers coming out. But as we look at the list of who's come out against Jesus, there's Judas acting as their guide. There are officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees most likely the temple guard, uh, who presumably on this account are primarily the arresting authority. Uh, The temple guard weren't always armed, but we're told that the entire party comes out here armed. And we're told there's a detachment of soldiers with its commander. Now it turns out that these words detachment and commander are technical terms. They refer to a cohort of Roman soldiers which could number up to 600 men. Now why did the Romans bring out such a force to arrest one man? Well, it could be the Romans feared a riot. Uh, It was festival time, Passover time, crowds had flocked into Jerusalem, the numbers had swollen... Uh, And passions and national identity run pretty high in Jerusalem during festival time. It could have been the Jews had expressed their desire, we need lots of help here because we've tried plenty of times before to arrest him and we've been unable to. And he's got a crowd of people around him. What, What if the disciples resist arrest? What if some excited Galileans who are in town for the Passover join in. So we're told this whole 
cohort of soldiers have come out with the temple guard led by Judas with torches, lanterns and weapons. They're prepared for trouble, they're equipped to meet it. Ironic, isn't it? Jesus always drawing people together. Here he's drawn Jews and Gentiles together as they come out against him. It must have been a daunting sight too, right? They've crossed over the Kidron Valley, a small valley that separated uh, the city of Jerusalem from where they are over on the opposite hill. I wonder what the disciples were thinking if they'd been aware of it, these 600 plus lanterns coming down out of the city and up the valley. A daunting sight, no doubt. And amongst this force that's come out against him, Jesus comes out to confront them. And against these perhaps 600 men brandishing weapons, Jesus comes out and speaks a word and they fall to the ground. Well, what's going on there? John repeats for us so we don't miss it. Two more times, the words Jesus speaks. They come out, Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Then John tells us, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. The phrase, I am he, is literally, I am. This is the very same phrase that Jesus has used before that stirred such an angry response. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus declares to those who've come out against him uh, on that occasion, he says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, we're told, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I am, in the Old Testament, is how God chooses to reveal himself. When Moses was first called by God in the burning bush, you remember that account? And, uh, and God says, I want you to go, uh, lead my people and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses, not quite sure of himself, he says uh, to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And we've also seen the uh, power of that phrase through John's Gospel. The hints of deity, the hints of Jesus' divinity as he declares, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine and I am the good shepherd. And here, Jesus speaks the very language of God 
And I think we see here that it's Jesus' divine authority that overwhelms these men such that they fall back. Fall back in terror, perhaps, fall back in awe. In fact, again, as you read through the Bible, that, that falling down to their faces is a common response of people who, who are exposed to God, who encounter God. And so here we see another example of that. And on this occasion, perhaps more of reflection of Jesus' majesty, his power and awe, than a reflection of their hearts. But John makes quite a point of telling us who's in the crowd that falls down. We have the Jewish authorities, we have the Roman soldiers, we have Judas, in whom we're told Satan has, uh, Satan has moved into his heart. All these powers momentarily overwhelmed. And in this, I think we get a preview of what God has promised will come. You know that great passage in Philippians chapter 2, talking of Jesus, where Paul writes, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, conf- uh, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we have a hint of that moment where every knee will bow before Jesus, where at Jesus revealing something of who he is, revealing something of his divinity, of being God himself, we see Jews and Gentiles and the one in whom Satan himself is active being forced to the ground in the face of it. It's a real contrast, isn't it? They, they come seeking Jesus of Nazareth, just a man, and they encounter God himself. We see this picture of Jesus, both his humanity and his deity together. There's nothing more humble than the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel said about anyone from Nazareth right back at the beginning? When Philip comes to him and says, hey, we've we've met this guy. We think he might be the king of Israel, the Messiah. Philip found Nathanael, this is John chapter 1, and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Well, no doubt Nathanael had seen quite a bit of what Jesus of Nazareth could do. And so too, on this occasion, did Judas and the temple guards and the Roman authorities. Who is it you're looking for, Jesus asked. Whom do you seek? 
It's a question, in a sense, that all of us need to engage with. Willingly or unwillingly, we're all going to need to confront the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what will we see when we encounter him? It seems the soldiers and the temple guards, even Judas at this point, having encountered Jesus and fallen down with the force of his divinity, they had a choice, didn't they? They had a moment to respond. Having been confronted by this and, and, and trying to reconcile what, what's just happened, as they fall down in terror or awe, they have a moment to respond. These men who've come out in darkness have encountered the light of the world. And what are they going to do? They have a moment to respond before they persevere with their plans to destroy him. And yet, none of them act. They continue with their plans. What are we going to do when we're confronted with the divinity of Jesus, how will we respond? How do we respond as we encounter him here this morning? With awe and worship? Or do we continue to dismiss him as just a man, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, so we've seen Jesus' sovereign control, we've seen his sovereign power, and we get a hint too of his sovereign care for his people. Because we see how he uses his sovereign control and sovereign power for the sake of those who are his own. This whole episode seems like an echo of what Jesus has described himself as before, the good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And we see here how he acts to protect his own. He's promised to protect his own spiritually. Here we see him protecting his own physically as he establishes that they have nothing against the disciples and so they're free to go. As he prevents Peter from uh, any more damage and lets him go. But we see also Jesus' sovereign care for his people, not just in protecting them physically, but in giving himself up as the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. As he rebukes Peter, see verse 11, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Here's the one we're reminded of, as Caiaphas has spoken better than he knows, saying it's good if one man died for the people. As Jesus says, uh, shouldn't I drink the cup the Father's given me? Uh, there's a strong allusions here to the image of a cup that occurs throughout the Old Testament. And typically, it's an image, the cup of suffering. The cup of drinking the cup is to receive God's wrath, his anger. And we see here the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep, Jesus exercising his sovereign control, his sovereign power for his people, his sovereign care. We see his willingness to drink the cup, to bear the suffering, to bear God's wrath. 
that which we deserve, he is willing to take upon himself. We see here, as John the Baptist declared, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see here Jesus' willingness to be sacrificed in our place. We see here the man who would die on behalf of his people. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what he was doing and he did it in loving obedience to his Father and in loving care for his people. He willingly went to death as our sacrifice, as our good shepherd. So how do we respond to Jesus of Nazareth? with awe and worship, by acknowledging who he is. And what should we do in response to what we've seen this morning? Well, we do what Peter should have done. Nothing. Christ has done it for us. We don't need to act on God's behalf for him. We need to respond to what God has done for us with gratitude and confidence and trust, knowing that nothing will stop God achieving his good purposes. Nothing has stopped God's good purposes, which see Jesus die for us, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So what do we do? Respond with gratitude, confidence, and trust. Let's do that now as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us that Jesus would come into the world to die in our place. We thank you that we can have certain confidence that all your good purposes will come to pass because nothing can stand against you and your plans. We thank you that Jesus was in control of the situation that he willingly went to his death for us. We thank you for his sovereign power and ask that you would help us respond to him rightly in awe and worship. Father, grow in us a greater understanding of what you've done for us in Christ, that we might respond with gratitude. Grow in us a greater confidence that all you've said will come to pass. Help us to trust more and more in you and in Jesus Christ, our good shepherd who laid down his life for us. Amen.